Hi, I'm David Freudberg. Each week at the Humankind on Public Radio podcast, we strive to practice the simple art of listening. At times, it can feel like a lost art in our noisy world, and of course, not everything is worth listening to. But for me, when I'm able to get centered, listening can be almost a sacred experience, a moment of focused attention that accords the speaker a measure of dignity. If you value this too, please help others to find our podcast. Consider going to Humankind on Public Radio at iTunes and leave us a kind review. And thanks for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. This has been a road with incredible twists and turns in it. All I can say is that at each moment, I tried to accept where I was and hang on to my really deep conviction that life is a gift no matter how long it is. The astonishing story of a man who somehow managed to survive one life-threatening challenge after another. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. It's hard not to be awestruck by Bob Massey's survival instincts, and it's impossible not to come away inspired by the work he's done as a parish minister, an environmental advocate, and a champion of economic fairness. With the precious life Bob Massey has been given, and illness has been part of his life from the start. When I was born with hemophilia, um, I didn't think about it very much because it was part of my consciousness right from the beginning. I had this uh, illness that caused swelling in the joints and made it hard for me to walk and sometimes hard for me to use my arms because of the, the bleeding into the, into the joint space. But I didn't know any other life, and it actually took me some time to realize that this was really very unusual compared to other people and certainly other children my age. In the United States each year, only one in 5,000 baby boys is born with hemophilia, a painful and potentially crippling disorder that impairs the body's ability to stop bleeding. As a child, Bob Massey spent long stretches out of school battling the effects of hemophilia. He was often isolated from peers. But Bob had supportive parents, both authors, who collaborated on a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography entitled Nicholas and Alexandra, later adapted to an Academy Award-winning film. It was a topic they became fascinated by, partly because the Russian imperial family also had a child with hemophilia. I wore leg braces because I had lost the ability to walk without them, and I very quickly realized that people were instinctively nervous around me. You know, they saw me come in and you know, even if I was wearing long pants, they could tell that there was all this metallic gear under my pants and I couldn't walk with it. So a very interesting experience for me right from the beginning was learning to cope with people's um, instinctual fear and learning to overcome it, learning to project a certain self of self, uh, self-confidence, um, a certain um, uh, optimism that allowed people to feel 
uh, comfortable in my presence. And it's interesting, I've actually had several discussions with uh, African-American friends. There's some parallels here to uh, people who grow up in a minority race. Uh, they come into a room and people immediately notice something about them. And often the person who's in the minority has to project a sense of confidence. And, uh, and that's in some ways very unfair, but it's a reality the way human beings operate with each other. So how do you think through the question of why these difficulties came to you? Well, first of all, I'm a Christian. And so almost everything that happens to me, I do link back to my faith. Now, my image of God is not a God who visits terrible things on people, but a God who cares about people as they go through terrible things. And I, right from the beginning, realized that I was a person with, um, who had received a mixed package. I had a severe illness uh, that could be very painful and very difficult, but I also had loving parents. I lived in the United States. My parents were middle class, um, and I had certain privileges that I knew very quickly were not available to other people in the U.S. or overseas, particularly. So it was a kind of a mixed package. I never, and I don't know exactly why, I never really sat there wondering bitterly, why me? Um, I think it was, again, because I was born with something that uh, I gradually became aware of, and then a sequence of things unfolded. There were certainly many opportunities to ask, why me? Why did I get hemophilia? Why was I exposed to the, uh, HIV virus, why didn't I die after a few years? At the time, I was exposed to it in 1978, and people didn't usually live very long. Um, in 1994, I was still alive after 16 years, and I finally went to doctors and said, can you explain this? And it turned out that I had a very, very rare genetic uh, mutation that prevented me from getting HIV. So there was the why me of that. In his memoir, A Song in the Night, Bob Massey describes serving as a student intern in the U.S. Senate in the mid-1970s. Because blood transfusions are part of a hemophiliac's life, he spent time during the internship researching the global trade in blood products. Bob was distressed to learn that companies were collecting blood from poor and sometimes unhealthy donors. In 1978, then a student at Yale Divinity School, he became acutely ill and was forced to withdraw for a time from his studies, an episode Bob now realizes was the initial sign of HIV infection contracted through a tainted transfusion. HIV was replicating in his body, but the virus was being suppressed, and mysteriously, he never got AIDS. I had the genetic strangeness of my original hemophilia. I had the strange lottery that I got HIV. Then I had the strange outcome that I was resistant to HIV. And then I had the peculiar result that I was exposed to hepatitis and got liver disease and on and on and on. So uh, this has been a road with incredible twists and turns in it. Um, and uh, all I can say is that at each moment, I tried to accept where I was and hang on to my really deep conviction that life is a gift no matter how long it is. 
and it turns out I was given, initially I thought I was going to be given a much shorter portion, and now I've realized I'm likely to have a more normal portion, and both of those things are mysteries. When you live with that many mysteries, and what I would say is a great deal of grace, when you're surrounded by uh, huge, unexpected, unmerited opportunities, it does change who you are. Some people are so devastated by illness that they become withdrawn and bitter. But for others like Bob Massey, the challenge of physical ailments produces a ripening of compassion, a deep firsthand awareness of suffering and of the need to be of service to others who suffer. One of the things that I tried to explain in my book was um, moving from being very small and really only being aware of my own immediate circle and circle of problems and my family and so forth to broadening my awareness that other people were going through things and you know locally regionally nationally internationally so for me part of the effect of these illnesses has been to give me an increasingly broad consciousness about how many struggles people face around the world and uh, you know, I can barely read the newspaper and look at situations where people are enduring tremendous and brutal situations, and I feel lucky to be as comfortable and safe as I am. So, uh, so I, I think, um, I don't want to sound Pollyannish, I mean, I went through some very, very hard things, and they scarred me, but they also taught me. And one of the things they taught me is that uh, I think a key to joy and strength in life is to locate the things for which you can be grateful rather than be preoccupied with the things that you think you deserve that other people got and you didn't get. Um, I think my parents had a lot to do with that attitude. I think my uh, incredible wife had a lot to do with that attitude. And I think uh, my faith had a lot to do with that. I wanted to ask you about your relationship with religion. Mm -hmm. You've said that early in your life you experienced a deep conflict between your personal faith and what you observed of how organized religion is sometimes practiced. Mm -hmm. Can you describe that? Well, I was a young man, and young people in general tend to take the words that their elders say rather literally. So if uh, someone says they believe in freedom or democracy or equality and then doesn't seem to live up to it, it was uh, it seems shocking to younger people. At least it did to me and to many of my peers. And so one of the things that uh, really struck me when I was a young man was that the uh, teachings of the church. I grew up uh, affiliated with the Episcopal Church, but I was very interested in different forms of Christianity, um, that it seemed that the teachings of the church about um, forgiveness and about uh, poverty and uh, healing and things that were mostly seemed to be honored in the breach, and that people spoke these words but often didn't live by them. 
Now, as I've gotten older and I've discovered my own failures and I have a much longer list of my own failures, I realize it's not quite so easy to have something come out of your mouth and then have it reverberate through all of your actions. That's a hard thing. But I also think one of the great things about uh, many religious faiths, and particularly the uh, uh, Christianity, is that it has at its heart a self-renewing quality. That is, people can always go back to the original messages and say, are we living up to this? And when the answer is no, that often provides a force and impetus to clean house and start again. And that's something that I think is a very good thing. You quoted in the book that Jesus himself observed the, the gap between what people pay lip service to and their actions. Uh, absolutely. I mean, Jesus and the story of the widow's might and uh, many others stories where he comments that people in his day seemed more preoccupied with uh, the public approval they got from appearing religious than from the uh, gentler and more private qualities of mercy and tenderness and forgiveness and compassion and so forth. And I think that that's one of the ironies that Jesus himself had to cope with that both made him angry and made him sad, which is that people who genuinely wanted to find um, who, who wanted to discover how to be holy or holier in their lives often ended up using the vocabulary of religion to differentiate themselves from other people and point out how superior they were. You know, try as I might to um, be a, a more compassionate, thoughtful, generous person, you know, I am continuously failing at this. And so I should, rather than spend a lot of time considering how other people have failed at it, I should really uh, have the humility to acknowledge my own failures and spend a little more time on that. And I think that's one of the lessons that helps us stay in community with each other. So why do you think it is that it's so hard for us to live up to our ideals? Well, that's a question I've been thinking about for probably 40 or 50 years. I um, Part of it is comfort. Uh, we are seeking a balanced, peaceful, comfortable life and sometimes asking questions that uh, are uncomfortable about our own behavior or that would force us to change. Uh, that's difficult and sometimes it seems much better to just leave those questions unaddressed. We're talking with Bob Massey, Episcopal minister, environmental advocate, and president of the New Economics Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, whose mission is to build an economy that prioritizes people and environmental responsibility. Bob's book is titled A Song in the Night, a Memoir of Resilience. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information and to obtain an audio copy of this segment, please visit humanmedia.org. You served as a young minister at a church in Manhattan during the 1980s when the homeless population began to swell nationwide. And one day you decided to dress in a way that might cause people to think you were a homeless man. So could you describe 
what you experienced of the reactions of the passers-by? What, what was that like? Well, at the time, I often went around in my clerical collar, and so I was used to people reacting to this visual cue uh, that I was ordained. And some people thought I was Catholic or something, but, but people, you know, it's a uniform. And when you wear a uniform, people immediately react. And it occurred to me that um, even when I wasn't wearing clerical collar, I was still, you know, reasonably well-dressed. And so people drew their cues from that uniform. So I wondered what it would be like if I put on some of the clothes that were identified with being homeless people. So I got out a down jacket, even I think it was still early in the fall. So, you know, down jacket, and I had dirty sneakers, and I had torn blue jeans, and I had a wool cap that I pulled down over my head. And I kind of shuffled, and I had a bag of miscellaneous stuff. And I was curious to see how people would react to me. And um, also, what, in a funny way, what wearing those clothes and starting to enter that role would do to my own psyche. And what I discovered is that people immediately started avoiding me. Um, you know, I would go into a shop to get a cup of coffee or just warm, warm up a little bit in the evening, and the shopkeepers were keeping an eye on me. You know, they were, who is he? What's he doing in here? Is he going to steal something? Uh, people made a, gave me wide berth on the, uh, on the street. And... Um, I even then went so far, and I don't hold this up necessarily as a great thing to have done, but I uh, went to a city um, shelter intake place and you know, went through the whole process of being interviewed and so forth. And I was very struck. There were some uh, social workers there who were very kind to me, and they wanted to know my story and so forth. But um, I was also really struck by how discouraged everyone was and how just depression hung in the air and uh, you know I happened to be there when uh, some homeless person uh, I don't know what happened I didn't see the exact thing but somehow he ended up getting pummeled by the police out in the hallway outside and um, so there was an undertone of violence to the whole thing and uh, so, and it was only when they said that they, yes, they had a bed for me, but I'd have to take a boat in the dark out to Rikers Island, which is the prison, um, and sleep in a hangar or some kind of warehouse out there that I decided I was, that this uh, impersonation well, was going to come to an end. The jig but, was up. Uh, the jig was up. Um, so I peeled off from the people lining up from the bus. But, you know, that was only one day. And when I realized what that was doing to my awareness of the world, um, and people's awareness of me. Can you imagine what that would be like if you did it week after week, month after month, and if it really started to become your self-identity? And if you ended up sleeping at Rikers Island. That's right. Well, we ended up creating a small shelter um, at Grace Church, but it was very interesting. That was an example of working with the church uh, to try to you know, live up to their aspirations. And there was a lot of fear. What happens? I mean, and some of the fear I can understand better now than I did then. Uh, we also operated a school. Do we really want a group of uh, homeless men uh, waking up in the morning and being just one building over from a whole group of school children? Um, I thought that was not a worthy 
question, but I was not parent at the time. I think later I would have shared some of the anxieties. We got over them, and we opened the shelter and ran it for a number of years. But um, uh, yes, it was, uh, I, I don't, I mean, it goes back in a funny way to the question we talked about when I had leg braces. People react visually to those around them, and they instinctively, out of anxiety or fear, are going to exclude those they think they have something to worry about. And that has an incredible negative effect on the person to, who's subjected to it. Bob Massey's brief immersion in the world of homelessness enhanced his sensitivity to the problem, which markedly increased in the 1980s as programs for housing and social services were cut back. At one point, he visited the New York office of the Catholic Worker, a newspaper founded in 1933 by Dorothy Day as part of a movement to provide assistance by religious communities to the needy. I went down there and had some conversations with people, and they were actually selling some lithographs, um, one of which had a, was a lithograph of a long line of men waiting in line for soup. Um, and the men are indistinguishable, except one of them is wearing, you can just tell, a crown of thorns and a very slight halo. And what I took that to mean, and what I continue to try to remind myself, is that um, we have to remember to see Jesus in other people, no matter what their circumstances. What does it mean to recognize Jesus in every person, regardless of their circumstances? Um, I think it is a spiritual practice. That is, um, if you remember Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, and he says, if I do this for you, then you need to do it for others. So it's another way to remind one of, one, of one's humility and not lord it over other people. So it's a spiritual practice. I also think that one of the things that um, I think all faith traditions teach about is that truth is often hidden and that religious wisdom, the wisdom of faith, is seeing past appearances. And so a person may look like they're not worth something, but in fact, they are worth a great deal, not just in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of others. And then sometimes, uh, conversely, the people who look most extraordinary and powerful are really not people you want to emulate or live your life uh, by their values. So I think seeing Jesus in the face of other people is a way to remind us that um, you know, he, his own ministry was a ministry of hiddenness and brokenness and, and, you know, coming from the ground up, so to speak. That perspective informs Bob Massey's work today at the New Economics Institute, which was founded in 1980 by E.F. Schumacher, who wrote the influential book Small is Beautiful. It offered a vision of sustainability and economic justice. Today, the Institute works to address climate change and inequality. Bob Massey's dramatic personal story took yet another sharp turn when his life became gravely endangered by his deteriorating liver. 
Doctors said he could survive only through a liver transplant. In 2009, Bob received one from a young Florida woman whose liver was essentially healthy except for a defect that would not cause Bob much harm. Initially touch and go, his medical condition stabilized over time. Remarkably, Bob's new healthy liver meant the hemophilia that produced brutally painful joint bleedings in childhood was now permanently cured. It's been a long road. You were diagnosed with HIV very early into the epidemic. Yes. Apparently due to tainted blood that you received during a transfusion related to your hemophilia. Mm -hmm. And against great medical odds, as you've explained, you've survived for decades. You have written every moment and every emotion is marked by fragility and meaning and grace. As we struggle together against all the currents that are carrying us relentlessly downstream, in the end, our only real compass is love. Would you explain that? I contracted HIV around Thanksgiving of 1978. When I found out that I had it, it became clear that I had had it for quite some time. And one of the things that was troubling was that, so for example, uh, they would say, well, a person can go for as long as five years before their immune system gives out, they develop AIDS and they die. And at that point, I had been five years out. Um, a few years later, they said, a person can go as long as eight years. And I had been eight years out. And then 10 years, and I'd been 10 years out. So I felt that I was always living on that edge of viability. And that um, it was right at that moment that things were going to turn badly. Now, when you live like that for a very long time, you start to form a sense of your own mortality. Uh, and that can be very scary. And certainly, it can rearrange your thinking about the future. I didn't arrange for a pension plan for quite some time because I thought, why? I'm not going to be here. Um, I tried to get certain things done that were important to me because I realized I didn't have very much time. And then, as things stretched out, more and more time seemed to come my way. Um, I did not lose that reflection on mortality. And I think that's actually something that turned out to be a great gift. You go almost anywhere in the literature about illness or people who've had near-death experiences, and they'll tell you that uh, suddenly coming to terms with mortality, with realizing that we're all going to die eventually and that every person has to face this, this is a doorway we all go through, uh, can actually be a very liberating experience. It sounds counterintuitive. It sounds like you've suddenly hit some huge morbid thought that you start to worry about. But what I was trying to express in that passage is that instead you are not suppressing a reality at great cost and energy that is going to overtake you at some point. Um, meaning the inevitability of death. The, meaning the inevitability of death. Uh, instead, you're able to say, my gosh, this is an incredible day. It's a beautiful day. I have a lovely family. I'm doing, you know, I mean, yes, there are many problems in the world, but I can celebrate this moment because it's precious. Uh, you know, the, the writer Chaim Potok in his uh, books specifically talks about 
that the limitation on things is what makes them valuable. Limitation on time and limitation on, on gifts is what makes them especially valuable. And I think that um, many human mistakes and misery come out of thinking that we have an unlimited amount of everything. If I can put on my new economics hat for a second, we think we have an unlimited planet. We think we have unlimited water. We think we have unlimited uh, ability to pollute the air. And we think we have unlimited time. And so, and when you think everything's unlimited, you behave, you squander it. You squander what you have. Instead, if you realize that there's, um, uh, that there's a certain amount allotted to each person and to us as a species and so forth, you start to treat it as precious. And I think that's what I was trying to say. Bob Massey is an Episcopal minister, president of the New Economics Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a one-time candidate for the U.S. Senate. He is author of A Song in the Night, a memoir of resilience. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart-Rose. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston and Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, Bob Massey's Survival Story, is Humankind Program number 191. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.